As I discovered, almost all of the most powerful scientists had locked themselves into a kind of dominant medical nutrition dogma. Every public health institution has come out on the record saying that saturated fats are bad for health. It's just a lot harder to change some of the more entrenched pieces of advice. More fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, low-fat, dairy, lean meat. What is the rigorous clinical trial evidence to support that? There are zero to support our current dietary guidelines. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so excited about today's episode. I talk about this in the show, but I have been a fan of Nina Teichel's work for so long. So this was really such a surreal moment, finally getting to sit down and interview her. I really appreciate all that she has done in really analyzing the history of the politics surrounding the thoughts and potential myths of things like the role of dietary fat in our diets. Her book is pretty shocking for what it reveals about what has gone on to lead to where we are today with our current paradigm. In this show, we talk about some pretty shocking things like crazy manipulation of studies, the history and future of trans fats, finally an explanation of what happened with PrediMed, how scientists pass on their ideology, and so much more. And as a note, definitely check out the show notes. Not only will they have a full transcript, but they will have a link to Nina's Substack. That link is unsettledscience.substack.com. Those show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash surprise. And I don't think I mentioned it, but her book is called the big fat surprise. So melanieavalon.com slash big fat surprise for the show notes. We'll also have a link to both Nina and my analysis of what the health film. We talk about that in this show. So definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Friday announcement post on Instagram. And again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. If you're enjoying the show, the absolute best way to support it is if you can take a brief moment and subscribe and write a brief review in Apple Podcasts. It helps so much more than most people realize. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market. 
ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now. Before we change to subscriptions, you can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Nina Teichels. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the guest that we have today. So the backstory on this conversation, back when it came out in 2014, I read a book called The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet by Nina Teichels. And So when I read that book, it honestly blew my mind. (laughs) It was the most extensive overview of what has led to today the potential misconceptions and demonization of things like saturated fat and cholesterol and how it relates to heart disease and in particular the crazy different factors that went into why we have the dietary recommendations that we have today. It goes into the the politics of everything, the studies, what has actually been found in a lot of scientific literature. So it's a real mind blower. And I've been dying to have Nina on this show, honestly, ever since I started it. So when our mutual friend, Cynthia Thurlow, mentioned that, I think you've been on Cynthia's show and that you guys are friends, I was just 
dying for an introduction. And so then I was excited because then I was like, oh, I get to reread The Big Fat Surprise now. I love like seeing how my perceptions have changed and how it's kind of like a, a time capsule of sorts when you read a book at one point in your life and then reread it later. So I reread it now. Again, blew my mind again. And it was exciting because a lot of the people that you talk about in the book I've actually had on the show now. So like Gary Tops has been on the show, Marianne Nessel, who just is one of the most incredible people. So it was really exciting to reread it now. But I have so many questions about the book, about the things that have happened since then, about stuff now. So Nina, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Melanie. And it's just such a lovely introduction. So yeah, I'm happy to be here. Oh, and also last night I was randomly just doing some last minute research. And so I was, what I was trying to find was the historical data on saturated fat intake from just like history until now. And I started reading the first thing that came up and I was reading it and I was like, this really sounds like Nina. And then, <laughs> and then I looked at the top and it was you, it was your article. Oh, wow. That's great. I'm delighted. I know you were like the first hit. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, this is so perfect. But actually, 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 that relates, to, I didn't plan this, but that relates to a big question I actually had for you. Because what I was trying to do with that Google moment, Google Scholar, was to find some literature outside of your book on everything. And then I was like, oh, wait, but now I'm actually, this is also from Nina. And this relates to my question, which is I'm sort of haunted. I think about this a lot. It's so confusing finding truth in especially dietary science and everything like I talked about in the introduction. And I'm really haunted by how do we know, how do we know the truth when so much goes into telling the story of something? And especially when you like do something like you do where you write this incredible, beautiful, extensive, well-researched book where you really are telling the history of everything that led to where we are today. Even that is still a story from your perspective, which would happen with anybody who's writing a book. So I guess my question is, how do we escape bias when we're tackling all of this? Like, what do you do? How did you sit down and write the book? That is an exceptionally hard question. When I started off my research, I was a vegetarian and I really did not much understand nutrition science. And it took me, it took me almost a decade to write my book. And I read thousands and thousands and thousands of scientific papers. And I just immersed myself in the scientific literature. And then I understood some of the technical issues of science, which I think are really a, just critical to being to be a smart observer of science. We could talk about some of those, but like what's the difference between epidemiology and a randomized controlled clinical trial and sort of what's the pyramid of evidence, better evidence, lesser evidence. So that's like one layer of trying to understand, but then you can't really rely on authorities because, you know, even though now I've just, you know, received a PhD and have been published in like the BMJ and which is a top medical journal and have maybe a dozen peer-reviewed articles to my name, I, I do not think that having a PhD or having anything in the peer-reviewed literature is necessarily, should be taken, you know, at face value. Because as I discovered, almost all of the most powerful scientists had locked themselves into a kind of dominant medical nutrition dogma. And that's basically like, 
saturated fat is bad, a diet of more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, low-fat dairy, lean meat, that's the healthy diet, and and vegetable oils probably, you know, in there. And that narrative is so powerful. And if you go outside the narrative, then you're unlikely to get research grants, you're, you will not get invited to expert panels or conferences. And I mean, I document a number of issues in my book about people who were trying to kind of butt up against the official narrative that, by the way, goes back to the early 1960s. We've been living with this for decades now. So being a top authority makes it even harder to step outside and tell what I think is closer to the truth about the science. And, you know, one way, I mean, there are a myriad of ways you can understand that this, this kind of dominant idea about a healthy diet is probably not correct. I mean, we could talk about the clinical trials that have tested that diet and shown that it doesn't improve health at all and really has is, is been found to worsen it. We can talk about the fact that since America adopted this diet, starting really in the early 1960s, we have gotten, you know, we've seen an explosion of diet-related diseases. So there's sort of all these proof points, you know, we're now at a point where something like 700,000 people die every year from these diseases. So we know what we're doing, what we're telling people to do is not working. I mean, how do you, how, I think that, you know, the best, I don't know what, it's really hard to figure out as an individual consumer what works. I think your audience is a bunch of biohacking people. And, and in some ways, like we're really lucky that with diet, we can be our own N equals one experiments, right? We can do our own. It's there's, there's some limitations to that. And we can talk about, you know, that, which is like, you don't immediately see nutritional deficiencies when you're doing your own, you know, those can take years to manifest, but on the whole, we can do our own experiments in ourselves, which is not something we can do, say, like, we can't all go and figure out environmental pollution because we can't do experiments individually on what causes environmental pollution. So, but we can all figure out ourselves and see, you know, which of the recommendations out there, be it carnivore, be it vegan, be whatever diet, you know, see what works for you. You know, the, because the, the other level of trying to understand science and really get to the bottom of it just takes a lot of work and diligence and not everybody really has the time to do that. You know, that's what I do <laughs> for a living. And it is, you know, it's, it's a tremendous amount of work. I maybe if you'll permit, I'll just tell you about this, the, the column, the, the piece that I just published today. And it kind of illustrates this point really well that there was a study that came out recently called a it was a twin study that was done out of Stanford by a scientist named Christopher Gardner, very well-known, very, very prominent scientist. So one of the people you'd think, well, let's trust him. He's Stanford. He's on the U.S. Dietary Guideline Advisory Committee, the most powerful expert committee on nutrition in the United States. So this twin study, it turns out, turns out his whole center is funded by Beyond Meat, a meat replacement. It turns out that the funding for this study was from a vegan advocacy group that just wanted to prove veganism. I mean, everything, they've given millions of dollars to vegan causes. They funded the movie, The Game Changers, which promoted veganism by featuring vegan athletes. Turns out Christopher Gardner has been vegan or mostly vegan for 40 years. Turns out they are, they did a, a Netflix docu-series on this study 
And, and I think one could very well argue that the whole study, which compared twins on a vegan diet to twins on an omnivore diet, and the vegan twins came out looking better on a very selected criteria for heart disease, a highly selective criteria, I meant to say. The whole, the, it looks like the whole study was designed as a kind of public relations stunt to be a sort of fig leaf of science for a Netflix film that was that is designed, it's propaganda. It's designed to sell veganism. And the science is secondary. It was, never, it was not really the point. That's just the conclusion I'm forced to come to after looking at the science in the study, looking at all the funding behind it, the funding behind the center, looking at the center's goals and aims, which is all about advocacy. It's just about how can we get more people to adopt a plant-based diet? There's really nothing about asking the scientific question, let's find out if this diet is really healthy to begin with. You can't be doing advocacy for an idea and also simultaneously say, well, we're not sure, you know, we're going to ask the scientific question, is this diet even healthy? So that just gives you an example like, well, well, I mean, here's one of the most respected scientists in nutrition in the country. So really, who do we trust? It's, it, it is a really difficult question. I, at the column I did before was on the Harvard Department of Nutrition, which is a very similar story and really eye-opening, I have to say, really, really eye-opening. Yeah, I was actually reading last night, prepping for another show, and they were talking in the book about the origin of the concept of paradigm shifts. And I guess the um, guy who came up with it, and it was forever ago, I think it was like in the 1600s, am I making that up? It was a while ago. But he basically said that in order for ideas to change, the people have to die. Like that's really the only way. Time is the only thing that can do that. Yeah, I think that's Thomas Kuhn's idea to have paradigm shift. However, what I have observed in nutrition, and remember the original idea that fat, saturated fat are bad for health, so therefore we should cut back, and cholesterol, so we should cut back on animal foods and eat more plant-based foods. That goes back to the early 1960s as official policy, and now we're 60 years later. Well, that's a couple generations in there, at least, right? So What's happened in this field is that there are so many money interests. So you've got the food industry, the pharmaceutical industry. There's, it's just a multi-trillion dollar set of interests behind our current advice. You have institutions like the USDA and the American Heart Association that do not want to fundamentally change their advice because they would lose the trust of the public. What you see is that one generation of scientists simply passes on the idea to the next generation of scientists. And they do that in part, they select those scientists who are going to agree with their own ideas. I mean, I, I go through a number of stories in the 1970s and 80s about the scientists who disagreed with this prevailing you know, hypothesis that it was saturated fat and cholesterol that caused heart disease. The scientists who disagreed they were maligned. They were like the John Yudkin, who famously who proposed that it was sugar that caused heart disease, not fat. They were called names. They were accused of being financially motivated. They were disinvited from conferences. Their papers were not published. All of these instances I document. And so what do sci young scientists learn coming up? They learn not to stick their head above water. They learn not to 
go down an unpopular path because it will not result in the rewards of science, which is to be able to publish your work and get research grants. And, and so that is also why I'm a journalist, Gary Taubes is a journalist, why some of the most independent thinkers and the people able to write and talk about this science are people who are truly independent. I receive no money from any industry. I know Gary, the same is true for Gary. We don't have brands. We don't, you know, we don't sell things. We, we really, so we're independent, but we're also, our careers are not dependent upon, you know, making nice to our senior scientist who is in control of either bringing along our career or, or bringing it to a grinding halt. So, yeah, so it's very hard for science, I think, in probably much harder in really in many fields, but especially in a field that is so suffused by money. And, you know, one could also say ideology because veganism for some like truly is a religion. You know, for people of the Seventh-day Adventist church, it is actually a religious belief. So, and other people feel like it's sort of a quasi-religious belief for some people because they feel like they want to do good by not eating animals, by, you know, doing what they can for climate change. And they really believe that veganism is the way to do that. So, there's just so many vested interests involved that it's, I think that it's unlikely to change. In fact, I think it's less likely to change now than it was 20, 30 years ago because, yeah, be just because the, the, fi- the moneyed interests are much stronger now. And this is so interesting because you predicted in your book an ultimate eventual ban on trans fats, which we've now seen happen. So even with changes happening like that or like, and you mentioned like the Beyond brand, and I know, aren't they not doing as well as (laughs) projected? So even with things like that? So they aren't. So those are like, those are positive data points. I think also we could just mention more people are drinking whole milk. It looks like the bill to get whole milk back in schools is going to pass Congress in the upcoming weeks, which would be wonderful. Is it just that milk right now? I haven't been to school in a while. It's only 1% or non-fat are allowed. And that is why so many kids have switched over to chocolate and strawberry milk, like thereby delivery. Because they, because the, because one percent or non-fat milk really tastes terrible. It's like water, watery. It is. Yeah, there are some positive data points. I mean, I wrote about trans fats looking at the ban again for my PhD thesis and, and to explain why, yes, we had the ban on trans fats. So why is it so hard to get official policy to respond to the science on saturated fat, say, you know, why is it so hard to, or on a low carbohydrate diet? I mean, our officials barely recognize a low carbohydrate diet, which has a vast amount of scientific studies behind it now. And the answer is, I think that trans fats, you know, they, nobody really even knew about trans fats. So there was not really an official, nobody, there was not a whole set of scientists who were devoted to protecting their pro-trans fats careers. There were not institutions invested in pro-trans fat recommendations. So there really wasn't a lot, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of interests threatened by a ban on trans fats. It's very different with saturated fats where practically every nutrition university department in the country has come out against saturated fats. And Every institution, the American Heart Association and every public health institution has come out on the record 
saying that saturated fats are bad for health. So it's, it's just a lot harder to change some of the more entrenched pieces of advice, I think, due to the fact that there's just institution and individual interests, so much cognitive dissonance in, in those areas. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not to be completely pessimistic, because on the other side of the ledger, you have now huge amounts of money behind fake foods, which, as you say, I mean, Beyond Meat is not doing that well, and neither is, say, some of the other fake replacement food companies, but they still have the entire, the, all the investors behind them, the United Nations wants to replace they're, they're going to use regulatory power, I think, taxes and other forms of regulation to really push these foods in, on us. I mean, maybe that sounds like a little draconian, but I think their governments are so involved in trying to get rid of animal foods now for climate change, which they there's just a sense of urgency around it, that I think that these private companies, even though they haven't been successful in the marketplace, may get a boost from government regulations. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but Rob Wolf talks about that a lot, actually, which is like really scary. I mean, I've heard people talk about the concept of basically tying it into people's credit scores and stuff and having people that might relate to, I mean, this would be going like (laughs) really dark, but basically like your habits and tying it into whether or not it's green or not and having some sort of scoring system. I can see how it could become a power thing real quick. Well, so, you know, that's sort of like the social credit score that they have been able to employ in China, you know, and that's a authoritarian dictatorship. I mean, I hope we never see the likes of that in the United States or any Western country, but I think they can, and they have made meat much more expensive. It's harder to afford, and they are forcibly taking farms, cattle ranchers out of production, whether through just taking land as in Ireland or the Netherlands or in creating so many regulations and, and rules that it's almost impossible to stay in business as a rancher. So they are making meat more rare and more expensive. And I think, so I don't know if people are going to then move over into the fake food or the you know sector or they'll just... Or they'll just eat, I don't know, more soy. I don't, I don't know what people will do. But then there's just like, like, like this Netflix film on the Stanford vegan twin study. They're just going, there's going to be, I think, a constant push to try to nudge people's behavior. And in fact, Chris Gardner at Stanford has, I guess, what he calls, I think it's called the stealth nutrition effort that he's extremely proud of about basically how to change people's eating habits and nudge their behavior in a certain direction by kind of using non-health arguments. Like how can we use climate change to change the way people eat? How can we use animal rights issues? How can we use labor issues? Like let's use all these other issues to, and conflate them with better health, which they aren't. And, but let's, let's try to nudge people towards eating less meat based on all these other issues. You know, we certainly see a lot of that in the press. So there's, so I guess there are there are other means of trying to push to change people's behavior and to confuse them about, you know, what is healthy and what is not healthy. So I don't mean to be <laughs> too dark about where we're all going, but you know, at the same time, just to add a positive note, you know, I do see 
just maybe it's just my feed, but I see so many people interested in getting sugars and grains out of their diets and people just revolutionizing their health. I mean, I see this on social media and I see, you know, I see that people who become healthy then become change agents in their communities and, and change the diets of people around them. So, you know, I'm not without hope. I also think that the science is so incredibly strong that it's, it's very hard to ignore at this point. You know, if you can reverse diabetes in, in a month <laughs> by getting out, getting sugars and grains and other carbohydrates out of your diet, I mean, that's, that's very powerful. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. You answered one of the questions I had because I was going to ask you about, I found it so interesting why they pick things that they pick to focus on. So I was always like, why is like trans fats the thing that got labeled and focused on? So I'm, I'm so glad that you addressed that. Honestly, it feels like the only way to have completely unbiased, well, even then it would be hard, but the way I see it would happen would be if there were independent journalists who aren't even invested in the ideology at all. Like basically people who don't care about the subject writing about it, which would not happen because why would people who don't care about it write about it? No, I was going to also say there's just, there are two problems with that. One is that people who don't know anything about it, it just takes a long time to really understand the field. So I've seen so many articles by, you know, pretty well-meaning journalists try to get into, try to understand it, but it's, it is a very complex set of subjects, not only, you know, study methodologies, but things that can go wrong with studies and subtle ways that studies are influenced. And, and then your average reporter is going to have a hard time 
disregarding, you know, somebody from Tufts, Harvard, and Stanford and believing some, you know, some non-credentialed person instead, right? That's just not what a normal, like, reporter feels comfortable doing if they're not experts in the field. And then I think, yeah, and then I, you know, and then nutrition is also not an area advertisers want to see. So, I mean, I've seen the amount of nutrition, serious nutrition reporting, even on sugar, which should be kind of a slam dunk. It used to be that you would see at like investigative news sites and, and in the New York Times, even there was, there were, there was a lot of investigative work on sugar and how it was making its way into all of our food and what were the forces pushing sugar. And now there's almost nothing. So, and I think that's, I think that's because there's a lot of There's now a lot of funding of news sites that comes from philanthropies, like say Bill Gates spends a lot of money on journalists and invested journalism sites. And, and so if he doesn't want sugar investigated, which he might not, I don't know, but you know, you, you just won't see it being featured anymore. So that's one, we have a lot of money flowing in, but even if it weren't from philanthropies, you know, what do advertisers want? They do not you know, we have a lot of pharma funding. We have a lot of food funding. They don't want to see stories about people getting ultra processed junk food out of their diet and getting healthy. That's just not what they want to see in their pages. And it's kind of fascinating with Wagovi and all these, these, you know, skinny shots coming out that you start, you started to see articles that I never thought I would ever see, which is, you know, how Kellogg's hates, you know, is trying to stop Wagovi because (laughs) it cuts into their profits. So yeah, you're starting to see revealed like some of the bare bones of you know, the incentives that go into our news coverage, which is that you know, big food and big pharma just do not want articles about how people can get healthy by avoiding drugs and, and eating well. Or what's even more ironic, I was reading something that the other day, it was one of the big companies and they were responding to Ozempic. And I don't know if you saw this, basically people losing weight on Ozempic and not eating as much processed food. So it was basically them responding to the, uh, having to tackle the the issues of just people not eating the processed foods, but because of losing weight on that drug, which I thought was so, so interesting. Yeah, I do too. That's a whole, yeah, it's very interesting. Like what I think what you can see is there's sort of this concept called what the Overton window, which is the window of conversations you can have in the mainstream like what is the what are the boundaries of what we can talk about and for a long time that overton window did not really include obesity because it was considered fat shaming and you can't talk about obese as being bad or even unhealthy because that would make overweight or obese people feel badly and and it was shaming them that that has completely shifted, right? With the skinny, with these new GLP-1 inhibitors like Wagovi, that conversation we are now allowed to have. We can talk about how people want to get thin, how people crave having a nice body and how that matters to them. That is that shift in this Overton window of the topics that we can discuss. That happened with the introduction of these new drugs and that happened because I think I think you can sort of hypothesize that who controls that Overton window of what we can and we cannot discuss? Very powerful interests. In this case, you would have to say the, the makers, the pharmaceutical companies that make these weight loss drugs. I've been so fascinated by 
the whole health at every size movement, especially because like if you look at the factors of metabolic syndrome and it's, you know, these list of factors and it's the visceral fat factor of that one that was like not okay to talk about health-wise. Like everything else, it's like, oh, if you have high blood pressure, that's a problem. Or if you have high blood sugar, that's a problem and we need to address it. But with the, the, you know, fat deposits on your body, it was like, we couldn't talk about that because then you weren't accepting yourself. Right. Which is completely absurd. I mean, being overweight, not, not, you know, a little overweight is, is not associated with increased risk, but being a lot overweight or obese increases your risk of every single other disease. It is a, it is formally the number one risk factor for diabetes, which is in turn the number one risk factor for heart disease. And it increases your risk of every kind of cancer. I mean, it's absurd to say that an obese person is as healthy as a, as a slender person. It's just not true. And there's so many statistics that bear it out, but our ability to have reason-based conversations about that or any number of topics in in health and nutrition is limited i think by the the fact that we don't we don't particularly have a free media right now not partic- yeah we we simply don't that is so fascinating what you pointed out about the paradigm shift that we were able to have surrounding weight and health because of these pharmaceuticals that are you know weight loss drugs and then what you just said about just the funding behind everything so if you could flip a switch and have a paradigm shift, like a paradigm shift switch, and you flip it, and now it's all the science that you believe is accurate as far as the role of saturated fat and meat and everything and diet. But the reason behind that is because it's funding on that side. Would you flip that switch? You're saying like, if I came out with a set of guidelines that I believed were evidence-based and based in good science they would inevitably be aligned with some set of interests. I mean, if I, if I said, I think it's, there's, there's no harm. And in fact, there's benefit in eating meat, especially as compared to some other protein sources that would line up with the interests of the meat industry, but it doesn't mean that the meat industry funded my views or funded that science. So maybe I'm not understanding your question. So not you per se, but if you could flip the switch and the prevailing ideas would be these ideas that you believe in that you talk about in the book and that we're talking about now and that a lot of my listeners subscribe to as well. If it was the same situation as it is now with like funding from that side and maybe they're also like, you know, trying to kind of have something similar to that um stealth nutrition. And I get what you're saying like that, you know, if it is the truth, then it in a way it doesn't really matter because it, you know, it would be supporting the accurate state of things and the accurate truth about the situation. But if yeah, I don't know if I'm asking this correctly. Let me let me maybe reframe it in a slightly different way. If you were if we were to say, okay, the current dietary guidelines are the healthiest. Kaylee, just to review, more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, low-fat, dairy, lean meat. What is the rigorous clinical trial evidence to support that? I did a cover story for the BMJ magazine in 2015 in which I went through all the evidence. I mean, every single study that had been used to support and justify those current existing guidelines. And I showed that there were zero clinical trials. That's what I read, I think. 
last night. <laughs> yeah. So there, there are, there are zero clinical trials to support our current dietary guidelines. And in fact, if you look at, if you look at clinical trials, like the largest nutrition trial ever undertaken in the history of science was called the Women's Health Initiative on some 49,000 women who followed. They were literally just given a copy of the dietary guidelines and told to follow it. Lowered fat, lowered saturated fat, less meat, more fruits and vegetables for seven, over seven years on average. And at the end of that experiment, which was powered for cancer, which not many studies are because it's hard to get actually outcomes on cancer. It takes a long time to develop. There was no benefit of that diet for anything for obesity. There was like a two pound difference, diabetes, heart disease, or any kind of cancer. And they looked at three or four different kinds of cancer, no benefit from the dietary guidelines. A more recent experiment, which was more highly controlled and is totally fascinating to me was where they compared the dietary guidelines to a, what we might call a junk food diet, like more fat, which I don't think is bad, but a lot more sugar, more desserts. You could have as many, you could have like, you could snack on jelly beans all day long. There was more refined grains. Okay. So at the end of that experiment, which I'm not sure I can remember six months or maybe a year, they found that there was no difference in health at all, except for one measure of blood pressure, which was slightly better for the women who had been given the dietary guidelines. And they actually, sort of the people who were following the guidelines, it was all women, they had a what is so-called dietary guidelines adherence score of 99. So they were totally following the guidelines versus the, the what's called the typical American diet, which their score was in the 60s or something in terms of adherence. So that was a good trial on the dietary guidelines, no support for the current guidelines. Okay, so let's just say, so that's the rigorous evidence and what it shows. Let's shift over to the vegan diet, which people think must be based on clinical trials because everybody is embracing a vegan diet. Well, it turns out there are no long-term clinical trials on a vegan diet showing that it's health, more healthy than, an, than another a control diet. In fact, there have been experiments done, but they don't show any benefit. And so there are precisely zero trials on a vegan diet comparing it to a control diet. And now there's this vegan twin study, but that's only eight weeks long. It only, you know, it was very selective how it looked at outcome data, but really it's just eight weeks is too short. Okay. So that's not evidence-based. What if we shifted over to a low carbohydrate diet? Is that evidence-based? So again, we're just, we're talking just about the evidence-based, not about whether or not this is aligned with this or that food interest. The evidence-based for the low carbohydrate diet, there's probably some 200 clinical trials on the low carbohydrate diet. It has been shown to reverse diabetes, like 50% of the population in multiple clinical trials can reverse their diabetes within 10 weeks more than 50%, and those results are maintained at two years. It has been shown in every, almost every, you know, head-to-head trial of its low-carb up against low-fat up against any other diet, the low-carb diet always does better for weight loss. It may not do spectacularly better, but it does better, and it improves in the trial that they did at the University of Indiana that was funded by Verta Health. It, in, it improved 22 out of 23 markers for cardiovascular disease. 
thereby, you know, very likely reducing somebody's risk for cardiovascular disease. Okay, so do we have a 10-year trial on the low-carbohydrate diet? No. But at the moment, it is has more evidence with better outcomes than any other diet. But let's take the Mediterranean diet, which people also think, wow, the Mediterranean diet, everybody talks about that too, and that's, you know, that must be healthy. There is one clinical trial on the Mediterranean diet that is long-term, conducted in Spain, called PREDIMED. That trial, it turns out, was retracted and then had to be reissued, and there are still serious doubts about whether it was properly randomized. Its outcomes show that it reduced stroke, but it's really not clear the risk of stroke, but it's really not clear if it reduced any other outcome for cardiovascular disease and even though we're told over and over, like a Mediterranean diet is low in meat, in that experiment, they did not reduce red meat. And the amount of fat that they ate was 40% of calories, which is way more than we're told to eat in our official recommendations. And they did not reduce saturated fats. So that Mediterranean diet is not like the one that we're being told to follow by the American Heart Association or the U.S. Dietary Guidelines has one too, their so-called Mediterranean diet style pattern. So, I mean, if you're just looking at the evidence, comparing different diets, and I understand there's a lot of different ways to parse the evidence people will say, but I'm, you know, I know all the meta-analyses that have been done out there, and I can tell you that they all this is a fair rendering, what I'm saying, of the state of the evidence on these various different diets. So, you know, if I were to flip a switch and make our guidelines, which are super powerful because they're downloaded by all doctors and nurses and nutritionists and dietitians and everybody and taught K through 12 and followed by the military. Our guidelines are very powerful. If I were to flip a switch on that, I would say it needs to be, you know, currently they're over 55% of your calories or sorry, 50 to 55% of the calories recommended are carbohydrates. I would way lower that. For people with metabolic disease, it has to be low carbohydrates. So below 100 grams and maybe below 20 grams per day if you have a metabolic disease. And then there's no reason to restrict red meat. The evidence just does not show that it's bad for health. I would remove the caps on saturated fats. There are 25 systematic reviews of all the clinical trial literature on saturated fats showing they do not have an effect on cardiovascular or total mortality. And the vast majority of those reviews, they show there's no effect on any cardiovascular events. And then I would remove the limit on salt and sodium because that's also not evidence-based. And I, yeah, I think that, that would be, that would do go a long, long ways towards fixing our problems, which is to say people with metabolic diseases, people who are not fully healthy should lower carbohydrates, not restrict animal foods, not restrict fat, have, you know, medium amounts of salt, salt to taste, really your body can guide you on that. And, and that I think would, that would just do a tremendous amount probably to improve. I mean, certainly would improve the health of the country. It's just confusing because, because I hear that and I'm like, okay, yes. And then I also hear things like, because like when you were mentioning this stuff about no studies on veganism and these different outcomes that we're looking for. Like I had Dr. Joel Kahn on the show, who's a big vegan cardiologist. And he always says, you know, the low fat plant-based diet is the only diet shown to reverse heart disease or, you know, and I'm like, well, so that's just like 
the complete opposite of what you're saying. So, and I, I'm saying this because I get this from my audience all the time. They're like, they're like, who do I believe? You have this one person on the one hand and then this other person. And I'm like, listen to everything. No, no, no. But that's, I mean, that's an excellent question. And I'm glad you brought it up because the idea that, so first of all, the vast majority of information of studies that support a plant-based diet are from observational or epidemiological studies that show association, but not causation. Okay. That means they can show one thing is associated with another, but doesn't necessarily cause it. I mean, just quick example of why that can lead you astray. Umbrellas in the street are 100% associated with rain, but it doesn't mean that the umbrellas are causing rain. It can just be, it could be the result of rain, which is reverse causation. And there are many other pitfalls of those kinds of studies. So, and in general, I think it would be fair to say, you know, in today's world, people following a plant-based diet are making a much greater effort to take care of their health than, than most people who are still eating hamburgers and French fries. And, you know, if you're eating hamburgers, you're not following your doctor's advice and you're having the milkshakes that go with it. And so, and all of those other healthy things that a healthy kind of person does they exercise, they smoke less, they're, I mean, vegetarians have been shown to weigh less, not, you know, smoke less, drink less. I mean, they're just healthier people. And you really don't know if it's the diet that is making them look healthy or some, one of these other behaviors. That's what the majority of studies on vegetarian or vegan diets, that's the kind of study they are. But there was this one clinical trial. I'm so glad you brought it up by Dean Ornish where he claimed to reverse heart disease. And I totally recommend, I mean, I know this sounds like a sales pitch, but I really was the first person who dissected that diet, that study in tremendous detail, really went through his work and discovered, you know, it was a total of 40 people, all men, no women. The people who got the intervention of the vegan diet also got meditation, yoga, supplements. You know, they, they had this whole kind of multi-dimensional intervention that was not just diet. It turned out that Dean Ornish, he did these kind of images of the arteries that were supposed to show plaque buildup. But it, but it turns out that just the amount of plaque you have in your arteries is not what causes heart attacks. It's the type of plaque that matters. It's the unstable breakaway plaque that causes art, um, heart attacks. So just the amount of plaque is not a good outcome, a reliable outcome measure. And in his study, although this so-called bad LDL cholesterol went down, so did quite dramatically the so-called good HDL cholesterol. So in all, you know, you could say, hmm, that's kind of a mix really there. It's a wash, you know, it's, he, he, having, having your HDL drop is a sign of worsening heart disease risk. And then finally, there were two deaths in the vegan group, which is a lot, like for only 40 people. And there were no deaths in the other arm of the study. And if you talk to Dean Ornish, and I've been on the phone with him numerous times, you know, he will defend his study to the end. But I mean, and, and, you know, he'll say things like, oh, well, that person died from something else, or they just became a maniacal exercise. Well, you have no way of knowing if like, you know, the diet made 
I mean, you just don't know. You still have to deal with what your outcomes are. So that is the, that single trial for which Dean Ornish miraculously was able to get it published. He got it published in numerous different journals, weirdly, which you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to do multiple publications of the same study, like the same results. And so he always refers to his, his having done studies, but really he did that one study. And it's that study that all those claims about reversing heart disease are based on. And, you know, it's just not, it's just a weak, small study that had very mixed outcomes in the end. So I think Joel Kahn, and I think I want to say, you know, in trying to understand Joel Kahn and some of the other vegan diet doctors, and this is true of a diet doctor from who has any, any set of beliefs, carnivore, vegan, whatever, they see their patients getting better. A lot of people who are on terrible, you know, typical American diets, they will look better if they go on a whole food plant-based diet, right? Because you tend to cut out sugar, you cut out white flour, you cut out processed food. Everybody looks better doing that. So they see their patients get better. As I said before, the nutritional deficiencies inherent in a vegan diet don't show up until later in many people. And, and then if people fall off the diet, they don't come back to your medical practice. So you don't even know about them. Like your world is filled, your patient world is full of people who've been successful. The people who are not successful tend just to drop out of sight. So that's true of, that is, that's why you have to refer to, you have to, you know, rely on clinical trials where people, you know, you have, those clinical trials have to follow everybody and find out what happens to everyone. Whereas, you know, a doctor's personal experience will be very powerful to them. They see it with their own eyes. And that's very compelling, but they don't know about the dropouts. So that's why we can't really use, um, I mean, anecdotal evidence is powerful, and I think it can be used to inform decisions in a number of ways, but it just can't be used to inform population-wide recommendations because it's not rigorous, it's not rigorous enough evidence. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. 
And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an near infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Well, I think my closest experience to what you've experienced so many times was I had Dr. Neil Bernard on the show. He actually requested to come on for his study, which was looking at a vegan diet with soy to reduce menopause symptoms in women compared to a compared to a standard diet, I think. But what was so interesting about it, and I will say in his defense, okay, actually I'll, I'll circle back to that. Um, <laughs> what was so interesting about the study, this was so mind-blowing to me. I was like, I don't know how how you can even draw this conclusion. And I, and I really don't know how you're asking to go on all these podcasts to talk about it. Because the conclusion was that it was the soy, that adding the soy is what reduced their menopause issues. The only comparison was the vegan women with the soy and then the standard diet. So there was no vegan diet without soy. So how do you know it was the soy? Maybe the soy was making it worse. Maybe a vegan diet, you know, without soy would have performed better. Like literally, I don't even know how the conclusion was drawn. I asked him that when I was interviewing him. He basically said, and this is why I keep getting flashbacks from what you're saying. 
he said something about how there some of the women before had been doing vegan. Like basically he was saying that it kind of worked because some of the people before fit the parameter to test that. But I was like, but that wasn't even, that wasn't in the study. I don't know how you can like make any of these. Um, But then in, like what I was going to say in his defense was that was a moment where I was like, I'm just going to try to lose all my biases and I'm just going to try to research soy and see what happens. And I actually did, not to soy, like GMO processed soy, but to like whole soy added to diets. It warmed me up a little bit to it. And that also happened to me with grains when I was interviewing somebody else. I don't remember who. That adding grains was helpful? Not adding grains, but um, I think it was when I was interviewing Dr. Bolsowitz, I think. I did the same thing. I was like, I'm just going to research whole grains. I'm not going to have any bias. I did find a lot of literature favorable. A lot of it was probably correlational epidemiology, but it did warm me up. And this and this is coming from me. I'm like like anti grains, <laughs> but um, I did like warm up a little bit. Well, I mean, you know, I try to. I remember when the movie. Maybe some your listeners remember the movie What the Health came out like 2015 or so, and I thought, oh, I did a massive break. That was frustrating. Well, I remember thinking, well, what are the studies on the vegan diet and vegetarian diet? And I went and I looked into the studies by Neil Barnard and, and Caswell Esselstein and everything I could find. Because I had looked at the Dean Orner studies, but I hadn't really looked at everything else. And I was really surprised how really poor studies were passed off as being more rigorous kinds of work. I mean, a little bit like what you're describing with Barnard. Barnard's done a number of studies on the vegan diet. I mean, he believes in it. He has a center in Santa Rosa, completely committed to it. But his studies just don't turn up benefits for that way of eating. And he's 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 done at least one two-year study and maybe more, and it's all taken place in a very biased environment, right? Because they're done at his Santa Rosa center where presumably everybody's into plant-based eating because it's his center, but they don't produce positive health results. Esselstyn, his, his study was not controlled, had no, meaning had no control group, was published in a sort of very casual family medicine journal did not follow up on everybody he even had in his study it was a it was barely a study so i was i was truly surprised by the lack of scientific evidence for this whole way of eating that had become so prominent in in you know in the media and you know in popular culture i was i was truly i was pretty taken aback by that you can still find it if you search but you have to go through quite a number of Google search pages. If you, if you search my last name and what the health I did a very, uh, on, it was for the diet doctor platform. I did a very extensive analysis of all the science in that film. And I guess what the health was able to bury the search rankings on that, <laughs> but which is something I've discovered since being in this field as a sort of non-narrative endorsing journalist is that that Google rankings are are quite, you know, there's there are ways to manipulate them. Well, I guess many people know that and maybe that just sounds very naive on my part, but I didn't realize that it could be done so so completely. And I've 
had that experience in just many number, any number of ways, like terrible articles that no one would ever read that turn up on my first page of Google results, like some letter to the editor in an obscure journal. Like, why is that on that, you know, that page? But anyway, that's just goes to speaks to the, the tremendous interest at work here and why it's, you know, again, gets back to the point you made early on. Like, it's very hard to understand and get to the bottom of, you know, what is really, what is, what is truth, truth, and not what is sort of official truth. Well, I will search, and, and I'm fairly certain, I will go find what you wrote about What the Health, and we'll put in the show notes. And I'm pretty sure I read it, and I'm pretty sure it helped me when I wrote my own post about that film as well. So I will go find those. I'll put them in the show notes. And I will say, like I said last night, when I was Googling saturated fat, you were like the first thing that came up. And I didn't even realize. So that was, you're still, <laughs> you're still there. You're still there. Yeah. Well, my book, I mean, just to put a little, another little plug for my book, it was the very first publication. It was the very first publication to put together the arguments for why saturated fats had been unfairly villainized. I mean, it was the very first place where all those arguments came together about small, dense LDL and about, I mean, just, it really was a, it's a, it's still a really comprehensive understanding of if you're confused about saturated fats, it's, I think, still a very good resource. It was also the first place to tell the story of seed oils. I think I might have coined the term seed oils, although I'm not sure, but you know, I, I was, I told the story of seed oils, you know, how they used to be machine lubricants and how they are actually, you know, they're subject to toxic oxidation or oxidation that results in toxic products that cause cancer and heart disease. And, and I mean, that whole, that whole narrative. Now there's like a hundred you know, seed oil disruptors and scouts. And, but that all started in my book. And I think it was also, I think it's still the only really complete thorough takedown of the Mediterranean diet, right? Like how do people really eat in the Mediterranean? And then how do we get the U S version of the Mediterranean diet and all the science behind that, which is an incredibly interesting story also because it tells how, the Mediterranean diet was really sold on the back of a whole bunch of glamorous conferences all over the Mediterranean that were funded by the Olive Oil Council of, in Europe. And it was, you know, they invited chefs and scientists and particularly Harvard scientists to conjure up this idea of a Mediterranean diet and then sell it to the public in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So that's a really a good read. <laughs> I mean, so it's still, yeah, I think those are still, and then since then I've published some scientific papers and journals that have been able to bring those ideas into a more academic audience. Listeners, read the book because what Nina was saying about the Mediterranean diet and the olive oil, I think that, I mean, that's like a page turner, <laughs> all of that information. And you talk about so many studies in the book that like we've talked about now on the show, but where it's just shocking what was actually in the study compared to what they said. Like one of the, I think one of the most shocking ones to me personally was the one it was on olive oil. And you said that they actually didn't measure the olive oil in the participants diet. Oh my goodness. That was an incredible study published in the new England journal of medicine. This is a famous study that was in a top, top, top journal by Antonia Tricopolis, now deceased, but she was like 
she literally was called the mother of the Mediterranean diet, a Greek doctor. She published a study based on observational studies, so data, which, so it's, you know, a weak form of data, but she was like, and the title in the New England Journal of Medicine was Olive Oil Prevents Heart Disease. And I start looking into this study and I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking and I cannot find any measurements of olive oil intake. Like, and I, I just don't understand it. Like, how did this get, like, somebody, it must be there because it's in the New England Journal of Medicine. So finally, I reach out to Dr. Tricopolis and I said, you know, what, where did you, how did you measure olive oil? I must've overlooked it. And she said, well, we just asked them about dishes that they ate, like, you know, you know, musica or whatever, any kind of cooked dish. And we just assumed based on our recipes, the amount of olive oil they must've used. Like, can you imagine? It's like mind blowing. It's like, it's so upsetting. That's not so unusual actually as a, you know, as a, I mean, I, I also discovered that, I guess it, maybe it's now relatively well known, but that Ansel Keys for his super famous seven country study, where he had gone to the island of Crete, where he studied all a total of 30 to 33 men, which who became like the sole subjects that was the foundation of the Mediterranean diet. Like it's based on their diets that he founded a Mediterranean diet concept he went there, one of the three periods he went there was during Lent, which is incredibly strict in Orthodox yeah, Christianity at the time in, in Greece, which was a total abstinence from all animal foods. And therefore, he inevitably undercounted the amount of saturated fat that these men were eating. But things like that, you know, you just, you can't, you, you, you can't sort of believe that the science is quite as bad as it, as it is. And also I think there's an added layer of surprise that really there are no referees in nutrition science that, that the field itself does not recognize or try to correct its own mistakes. There's, there are really good nutrition scientists, but as I have come to understand, they really are, those are not the people with the most power or influence. And so the ability of the field to police itself and hold itself to higher, more rigorous standards is, is truly lacking in nutrition science, which is, which is par- part of why we all have such difficulty in getting good advice. I totally forgot about this. Okay. Because when you, when you were talking about how you were the first person to talk about the saturated fat and like even the seed oils, I self-published a book in 2014 or 15. And then I got an agent and published it in stores with WW Norton in 2017 or 18, 2018. So I was like, I'm pretty sure I talk about Nina's book in my book. So I just pulled it up on Kindle really quick and just searched your name and it came up and it, <laughs> okay, I'm going to read you what I wrote and I'm going to tell you what happened. So this section is called the defamation of fat. And so I say, there's a very complicated and twisted history to the vilification of dietary fat. If you want a fascinating perspective of the full story, consider reading The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in Healthy Diet by Nina Teichels. It is Teichels, right? Am, am I saying your last name? Yes, you are. I'm impressed. I'm having a moment where I'm like, oh man, what if I'm saying it wrong? Or Good Calories, Bad Calories, Fat, Carbs, and the Controversial Science of Diet and Health by Gary Topps. So that was all I had in it originally. And now I totally forgot that when I sent it to my editor, 
actually, was it the editor or was it the legal department? It was one of the, it was somebody giving feedback. They were like, you got to put in a disclaimer there about tops. And I was like, oh, um, <laughs> because they were saying that he's controversial or whatever. So then I had to put in, in parentheses, Tobbs is an acclaimed science writer, though I will note that some critics disagree with his lengthy analysis as oft happens in the political health wars. I came up with that sentence, but I was like, <laughs> but I remember I totally forgot about that. The good thing is they didn't say that you were an issue. Not yet, I guess, at that point. <laughs> but yeah, they were not having it. That's so unsurprising to me, but uh, it's, it's interesting you know, I wrote a lot about Gary in my book. I wrote about, I think, you know, his really pioneering work in this whole field. And I, he was, he's like a character in my book because I believe he is the single most important thinker in the field of nutrition and has done more to create paradigm shift insofar as we have it than anybody else. I think he's just, just incredible. So I wrote about him as like a, a character in my book to kind of set his place in history. I, I think he's an incredibly important person. I mean, he's been doing this since, I don't know, you have to be, you have to be maybe like a little older. Cause I think it was the, the late 1980. No. When did he, it was maybe it was, maybe it was 1989 or yeah. Then he came out with what if it's all been a big fat lie and the cover, the cover story of the New York times magazine. And it, the opening scene is about the, the the people, diet experts, trying to imagine that Atkins, who was so vilified in his lifetime, had been right. And I remember reading that when it came out and thinking, oh, this is so alarming. And because <laughs> at that time, I was so religious. I was completely against fat of any kind. Yeah, he's he's just been a huge, hugely important person in, in all of this. And I recommend his books too. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just like, there's been, it's been now, I mean, he started really with that article and then I've been at this for researching and writing now for 20 years. I don't know if we'll see real change in our lifetimes, but I think what is really fantastic about your work and people listening is that this idea of like biohacking and figuring out what's right for your body and doing your own experiment, I think is very important and powerful for people. So, and again, I guess my one, like a big cautionary note is you just really don't know about if you're, if you're going heavily plant-based, you are not going to realize that you are starting to suffer from nutritional deficiencies until it's often quite a number of years before people see, I mean, they have problems with their teeth. The way that people see it most often is they have problems with their teeth. Their hair starts to thin or fall, you know, fall out or turn white if they're getting older. I think it shows, I think people age more quickly. And then you lose muscle mass. It's very hard to keep up with like the amount of complete proteins you need on a, on a vegan diet. Because animal proteins really are, you know, they're the only truly complete proteins and they come with zero glucose. So no sugar. Whereas if you're having beans and rice, that's a lot of, of sugar you're also ingesting with that protein. So yes. Yeah, so you can't tell right away on that. And the other issue that comes up for people is gastrointestinal issues that they start to have 
after, I don't know, six months, a year, maybe longer. Actually, there's a really fascinating story. As I mentioned, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they promote a vegan diet as a matter of faith that has to go, it goes back to their, like a, a vision that their founder, Ellen G. White, had when she sort of fell down and envisioned everybody eating like they did in the Garden of Eden, which was only fruits and vegetables. So that's the source of their beliefs. And I'm in the process of writing a story about how at the headquarters of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Sacramento, California, the incredible health issues that their leaders have suffered from, even though they believe in it, 100% how much they've suf- they're suffering, have suffered and and the results of a health clinic that's that's opened up there, I think that will be interesting. Oh, wow. When are you publishing that? I don't know yet. TBD. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight, it's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. No, I'm so glad you drew attention to all of that because I I think it's so, so important, especially the protein piece. We talk about that on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast all the time. We're so passionate about that. I mean, it's hard enough with animal products for people to get enough proteins often. And I think it's such an issue with the plant base as well. And I have to ask you really quickly, just because it's like it's like lingering with me. When you mentioned the um, Predimed study and then how it was reevaluated, like, you know, retracted or they had to reevaluate it. Didn't they say that it was the same conclusions still? They did. So that, so first of all, we have to point out how highly unusual it is to retract and republish a study in the same day. Usually a study. The same day? Yes. I think because that study was really the linchpin for the Mediterranean diet, which by that point, just to understand, okay, so pretty med came out in I want to say 2013 maybe, but the Mediterranean diet had been launched in America in 1993. So it had been a a product of, you know, it's been endorsed by Harvard for 20 years before a really decent study came out on the diet. So there was a lot riding on this study, right? 
And let's just also mention, you know, acknowledge that it was, it was in, in part, maybe in large part funded by various food industry groups in Spain that benefited like the tomato producers and the, I think maybe dairy also funded it and the potato producers, but it came out. There were questions about its randomization. It was, it was retracted and republished in the same day, which I've never heard of ever happening with any other study could have happened. I just don't know about it. And they said, we came to the same conclusion. We, we, we tried to fix the randomization, but randomization is a, it's not like a statistical analysis. It's something that you do early on in the study. So it's, it just wasn't randomized, right? They like, it was randomized like by, yeah, it wasn't randomized by individual. It was, didn't they think it would be easier for like people in the same families or something to exactly or in the same, in the same area, neighborhoods even, or villages. But then John Iwanides, who is a very famous professor at Stanford University, he, his team published a, an analysis of the new PREDIMED study. And they said, based on their analysis, there were lingering questions about the basic soundness of the PREDIMED findings and, you know, and John Ioannidis is Greek, right? So he loves the Mediterranean diet. It's, it's near and dear to his heart. But he said he, he thought that that study still had, like, significant lingering doubts around it. So, I mean, I think that, you know, even if you take it on its face, like, and, and accept it, the findings, they, the, the primary outcomes of that study was cardiovascular events as a group. So that's thing you group together, things like, heart attacks and angina and strokes, but really the only difference, and it was really only seen in the first year was in stroke. And the, there really was not a significant change in the rest of the cardiovascular events. So it was just stroke. And it, you know, so that's, that's a smaller finding, but again, this is the study. This is the sole study that is the foundation the sole clinical trial that is the foundation for the entire American Heart Association's advice. I mean, I went digging way down deep into all of their, their guidelines and discovered at the end of the day, all you could find, the only clinical trial they cite is PREDIMED. So there's just a lot writing on this study. And it hasn't been replicated, which is also a problem for science. That's something that's actually been haunting me for a long time because I hear... It's like multi-layered, like you hear PREDIMED and then you hear, well, it was retracted. So then it's like, okay, no. But then you hear that they have the same conclusion. So then it's like, it's like every step you go, it's like, wait, no, it's like frustrating. Um, so now, now I know that there's like another analysis. So yeah, it's like the endless back and forth. Like we could have, yeah, because you know, you understand on, on both sides, there are this, these huge, well, really there's just these huge interests behind PREDIMED. So Letting that, you know, if you, if you are John Iwanides and you publish a little study, I mean, there's going to, there's going to be every effort to sort of bury that. But, and again, like PREDIMED does not represent, it's not the American Heart Association diet. It did not promote, it did not promote vegetable oils. It was olive oil. It did not reduce red meat. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't our version the u.s version of when we throw around the idea of the mediterranean diet we were talking about something very different than what was tested in that trial 
again, for listeners, get the book. The Mediterranean diet stuff is just like fascinating. It'll just blow your mind. Maybe that's a good question just to end on. And thank you so much for your time, by the way. This has been absolutely so amazing. A big question I had was, because you go through the the very lengthy history of Ansel Keys and his role, and then also things like we just talked about with the Mediterranean diet and olive oil and olive oil and all of that. Do you think those were beneficial shifts in the fact that like with Ansel Keys, he did create a paradigm shift on the importance of diet and how it relates to health. And then like with the olive oil stuff and the Mediterranean diet, it's like that did create a paradigm shift bringing back in, you know, (laughs) some sort of fat, even though it wasn't saturated fat. Yeah. Do you feel like there were some benefits from those paradigm shifts or in a parallel universe could have just been a completely different way? And I think Ansel Keys' impact on nutrition has been 100% negative. I mean, and I say this when I say he was, his study was, his seven country study was pioneering, ambitious. He was clearly a curious, brilliant man. When he undertook that seven country study, he was, they were on little dirt roads, traveling to places, trying, you know, getting there and setting up little units to measure people's cholesterol and trying to figure out their diets and what they were eating. It was a pioneering, ambitious study, but he was not a scientist. He just circling back to like Christopher Gardner at Stanford, Ansel Keys, like Christopher Gardner, has an idea about a healthy diet. For Ansel Keys, it was reduce saturated fats, replace it with polyunsaturated vegetable oils, and lower your cholesterol. And he would not budge from that idea, no matter how much information to the contrary surfaced, which was a lot. While in his lifetime, 67,000 people were tested on his idea. I mean, he should be honored. There is perhaps no person in in the history of nutrition science who's had their idea tested in experiments all over the world. And none of those experiments could show that his diet, <laughs> that it reduced cardiovascular total mortality, or as I said, most of those, most of those studies showed no reduction in cardiovascular events at all. So, you know, he had his day, but he never accepted any of the information to the contrary, he took an active part in blackballing people who opposed him or, you know, wrote scholarly articles with different points of view. He was hugely aggressive about trying to snuff out the competition. And he was wrong. He was, you know, I mean, it's fine to be wrong, but then if you are a true scientist and you see that multiple tests of your hypothesis cannot show it to be true. You just have to back down off of that hypothesis and say, you know, I guess I got it wrong. And if he had done that, we would be in a much different world today. (laughs) So, you know, that shift away from saturated fat and cholesterol, which effectively meant reducing meat, dairy, shellfish, eggs, and over to grains and vegetable oils, has been, I would argue, really disastrous for health. So I can't see really any benefit to Ansel Keys having been such an important and prominent, probably the most influential nutrition science in the history of the field. Sorry to disappoint you, Melanie. No, 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 not disappointing at all. I mean, and again, for listeners, read the book to get the whole history. And what's so interesting is I feel like now that's like common knowledge that we all know that about him. 
And I really, that was probably due to you and I mean, you and Gary's work. Yeah. I think I'm, I, yeah, I think I, I was basically the one who really put together a picture of his personality and also his bullying tactics. You know, I document those and, and really talk about that. And I think I would sort of paint that picture why my book is particularly disliked by his uh, Aunt Keyes's surviving colleagues on the seven country study. They really dislike it. But, you know, I think I, I, you know, I think it's a fair explanation of his character. I mean, I encourage people to make their own decisions about, you know, whether or not I grew to be biased over the course of writing my book. Remember, I started as a vegetarian for like 25 years. So it took a lot to convince me. Oh, man, I love it. Well, thank you so much, Nina. I'm just so in gratitude for everything that you're doing. And you're changing so many lives. And I can't thank you enough for your work. And listeners, get the book now. The last question I ask every single guest on the show, super easy, super quick. And it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for my ability to feel gratitude about small, small everyday things. Having a practice of just feeling gratitude helps enormously. So yeah, I know that's a little tautological, but I am. No, I love it. I, I'm the same way. Like there's just so many little things and you can be grateful for. Like it doesn't have to be this like grand overarching, you know. Yeah. I mean, I really try to practice that in a Buddhist way. Like I'll be washing the dishes and either you can hate it or you can say, I'm just going to try to enjoy this in whatever way possible. Or, you know, whatever. It's just it's it just makes it just makes one feel better and happier. It's not always possible, let's acknowledge, but I do try. No, I love that. I don't think anybody said that before. I love that. Well, thank you, Nina. This was everything. I hoped it could be a more, and I will eagerly be looking for all of your future work. And just thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.